You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. All right. You know, wow, uh, as we were worshiping, I thought, you know, church might break out any minute now. Any minute. I mean, man, what a, what a time of worship together. Uh, you know, as I was driving to church this morning, I was just overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude to the Lord that he allows me to do uh, what I get to do. And what I've had the privilege of doing for the last 40 years is which is teaching God's word. And now in this a uh, new phase of my life uh, of turning completely and totally the leadership and senior pastorship of the church over to Derek has freed me up to focus totally on just the Sunday morning teaching and to take, begin to take the Fearless series out there uh, to the world. Um, and at the end of this month, I'm going to be uh, exhibiting the Fearless series at a, a big conference, uh, the first one I've been able to set up in San Antonio, Texas. It's the, it's the sexual leadership, Sexual Integrity Leadership Summit. It's a national conference. And uh, I called the, uh, uh, the, the d- director of the conference and I said, uh, he said, how can I help you? And I said, well, I'd like to be an exhibitionist at your conference this year. <laughs> and, and he said, well, we need to talk. <laughs> and he caught the joke. I'm glad that he got the joke anyway. And he didn't think I was serious. But I do get an privilege for two and a half days to... Uh, to have the Fearless series, have a table out front into the breaks, and people will be able to begin to see that. We're going to have a display monitor going where the trailer is, is going, have all the workbooks and everything there. Uh, our website is almost finished. It's ready to stream, but we've got a few other things that we're working out just on some technicalities and, and all that kind of stuff. But also, a couple other things have come up while I'm in San Antonio. I'm going to be able to do some, some other things about the Fearless series. And so I'm really excited about um, getting the opportunity to, uh, to, to do this thing and take this thing out there. Uh, it's beginning to get legs. Um, <clears throat> I was referred to someone that referred me to uh, one of the, and I won't mention it right now, but one of the largest national ministries, international ministries on the planet. Uh, Is it Kenneth Copeland? <laughs> oh, no. Shots fired. Uh, recommended the Fearless series to them for them to look at. And that individual is going to be at the Sexual Integrity uh, Summit down in San Antonio, so I'll have an opportunity to meet him. So, you know, God is just opening doors, and and at this point in my life, I'm trying not to to kick doors down. I'm just allowing God to open the doors, and I believe that is is happening. So I'm just incredibly grateful for the privilege that I have to continue to teach, which is my passion, but also to be free now to carry uh, the Fearless series out there and get it into the hands of, of churches. You know, I, I should recant. I shouldn't take sarcastic shots at people like that. I should only make serious ones. So, um, I'm sorry about serious that. Serious shots? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just sorry. get really angry and do it, all right? Mm-hmm. Go on Facebook and do it. That's where it's usually mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Very effective. So, so this morning, what we're doing, we're involved in a series of messages where we are really diving deep. I mean, really putting on the scuba gear and diving deep into major doctrines of our faith. And the first one, two weeks ago, we looked at the Scripture, the Bible, because the Bible is the revelation of God. It's where we understand what it is that we believe as Christians, and He's revealed Himself in the written Word and the living Word. And so we spent the first week talking about why you can trust 
what the Bible says. And then from there, everything else coming out of the Bible, well, then what does the Bible say about these major doctrinal statements? And the very first one that we looked at was the doctrine of God. What does the Bible say about how God has revealed Himself to us? Who is He and what do we believe about God? This morning, we're taking the next logical step, and that's coming into what we call Christology, which is the Word about Christ. Okay, Christ, Logos, the Word about Christ. What does the Bible say about Christ? What do we believe about Christ? How has God revealed Christ to us? I remember hearing the story many years ago of a little girl that was drawing a, a picture. And her mom said, sweetheart, what are you drawing? And she said, well, I'm, I'm drawing a picture of Jesus. And, and she said, well, babe, we, nobody really knows what Jesus looked like. And she said, well, they will when I get finished. <laughs> and so this morning, what I hope is that you, we will be able to fill in some of the gaps. And, and most of us have an outline of Jesus and what Jesus looks like from the Scripture, but we're going to dive deep and we're going to fill in the fine points this morning so that you can come away with a deeper understanding of Christ, a deeper uh, appreciation for Christ, a deeper love for Christ, a deeper devotion for the Lord Jesus Himself. And so we're going to begin where we did last week with God, where we said that God is God. Now, this morning we're going to begin with, then what does the Bible say? about the deity of Jesus. And let me just say up front, I, I've got a, we've got a lot of information this morning, so if, if it seems like we're talking fast, we are. Um, uh, hopefully so you have to listen fast. You listen fast, take notes. To me, the deity of Christ is, when I read the New Testament, the simplest of the doctrines for me to really buy into, especially in context of the Old Testament. It's one that's debated a lot, and I don't really understand why it's debated that much, because to me, it is very clear. When you read the Old Testament, God is set apart. He is holy. Only God can do certain things. We talked about many of those things last week in that sermon, the doctrine of God. Only God can do certain things. Only God is described by specific names or titles, his divine power, his eternality. No one else can do what God can do. No one can be compared to God. But then you get to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene, and he does all the things that only God can do. <laughs> so it's puzzling to me when people deny the deity of Christ, because I'm like, have you read the Bible? I, to be fair, Jesus is human as well, and James is going to talk with that in a moment about the humanity of Christ. But if you read the Bible at its face value, you find out pretty quickly that Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9 says the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So let me give you four evidences of his divine power, his deity, the claim that Jesus is God. Number one is his eternality. Uh, I read this last week, but I'm going to read it again. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is before all things existed, before time existed. Jesus was not only with God, but he was God. Revelation 22.13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. He says basically the same thing three times in a row for emphasis. The alpha and the omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I'm the A and the Z. I'm the beginning and the end. Nothing comes before me and nothing comes after me. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen, folks, time cannot measure Jesus. 
It cannot measure Jesus. Only God can make this claim, and yet this is the claim of Christ. James talked about last week the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is moving from a state of order to chaos. Beyond that, entropy tells us that everything decays, but not Jesus. Jesus lives forever. He is God forever. Number two, uh, another evidence, his part in creation. Colossians 1.16, I love this passage. Colossians is very rich. We did a verse-by-verse study of this in our life Bible study over the summer. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. How about the Bible started with, in the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. Isn't that strange? That God created the heavens and the earth, and Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Wonder what that means. One and the same, sounds like. Seems pretty simple to me. <laughs> Hebrews 1.3, it says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he up, check this out, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, this is a claim that only God can make. No one else can say, I'm upholding the universe by the word of my power. <laughs> no one can say that. Jeremiah 31, 35, God says, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. You know what his name is also? Jesus. Jesus. That's what Colossians is telling us here. Jesus is not only the savior of the world, he's the creator of the world. Number three, his titles. What all is he called in the New Testament? Well, for one, he's called Lord and God. John 20, verse 28, Thomas, remember doubting Thomas? He's, as, as he puts his hands on the wounds and on the side of Jesus, he cries out, my Lord and my God. Paul writes to I Titus. Thought, I, I, the Jehovah's Witnesses tell us that he was kind of doing, oh my God. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that in itself would be kind of blasphemous, just the, I think. It's it just would. the worst argument of all it's time. the absolute worst argument Jehovah's Witnesses, get over yourselves, man. <laughs> Come back, read the Bible, the real Bible. Titus 2.13, Paul calls Jesus our God and Savior. Okay, so he's called Lord and God. He's called Yahweh. I mean, this is the covenant name of God himself, and Jesus calls himself this. This isn't even someone else making this claim. John 8.58, it says that he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you've got to know a little bit of the Old Testament here to understand this. When God reveals himself to, to Moses in Exodus, he tells him, tell Pharaoh, I am that I am sent you. You know the literal translation of that. I is. I is. I, I is. Who I is who I is. It is actually literal. <laughs> it is yeah. literal. Yeah. I is who I is. Present tense. In the Greek, when the Greek begins to translate the Old Testament, it uses the first person personal pronoun along with the verb of being, ego eimi. It means literally, I myself am. And so when you get to John 8, or John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, ego eimi. This is the covenant name of God, I am. And we know that the Jews understood what he said because they picked up stones immediately to stone him. He's called Emmanuel, number three. Matthew 1, his birth, which is actually a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, it says that a child will be born and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Jesus is born, he is the Emmanuel, literally God with us in the flesh. Number four, he's called Son of Man. Now, this is one that you're probably not expecting me to say, because Son of God is, is pretty evident. 
And so a lot of people think when they read the Gospels that Son of God is his sort of divine title and Son of Man is his human title and that he's both human and God. And that is true. James is going to talk about his humanity in a moment. But that's actually not true at all. The Son of Man title is actually a divine title. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 where the prophet Daniel talks about the Son of Man who will come with the angels on clouds of fire and he will approach the Ancient of Days, who is the Father in heaven, who will give him glory and dominion and an everlasting kingdom. The Son of Man is actually a, a very powerful title for Jesus that, that represents his true godness about him. The fourth evidence is his attributes. We talked about the attributes of God last week. We find Jesus has many of them as well. He is omnipotent. He has, in other words, total power. He has full authority over weather. He has full authority over demons. He has full authority over sickness. He has full authority over death. Again, something that only God can claim in the Old Testament. He's omniscient. He knows all things. John 2.24. It says that Jesus did not on his part entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew them intimately. Luke chapter 5, Jesus forgives a man of his sins, and it says that the Pharisees and the scribes begin to question, how can this man, how can this rabbi forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin. And it, and it says in Luke 5.22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. <laughs> I mean, this, this guy is impossible. I mean, you can't even think about anything without him addressing it. John 21, Jesus is talking to Peter. This is after the resurrection. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says that three times. Peter finally breaks down. He goes, Lord, you know everything. In other words, he's like, why are you asking me this? You have all the answers to all the questions. Nothing is hidden from you. Why are you asking this? You see, the one doctrine that has more evidence, I believe, than any other evidence in the scripture is the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Because it is so clear and it is so woven throughout the fabric of Scripture if you just look at it honestly at its face value. But this is interestingly also the one doctrine, if you were in my cults class, this is the one doctrine that every major Christian cult rejects. Every single one of them. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, the Way International, you go on and on throughout the list, Christian science, they are all rejecting the deity of Christ. They, they relegate him to a good teacher or a good man. And there's a real problem with that because if you reject the actual nature of Christ as God in the flesh... You reject then, Christ. Then you reject Christ. Absolutely. And you can't say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, but the Jesus you believe in is not the Jesus of the New Testament. So you believe in a false yeah. Jesus. Jesus. You believe in like Jesus. Jesus. Right. <laughs> Call him Jesus. That's not Jesus. a. It's not derogatory. I'm just, Jesus you know, is a good guy, but he just, ain't God. He's just not God. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. It's a good name. He's not. He's not God. So here's the problem, though. If you do that, this is why cults do that. Because if I can relegate Jesus to a man, then I'm not subject subject to him anymore. I don't really have to obey him anymore. I can just sort of model my life after him. Good luck with resurrection, by the way. But <laughs> but I don't have to really be subject to him. But if he is God. We're all under his lordship whether we like him or not. That's right. That's why Paul says every knee will bow. Some will bow willingly, and some will bow out of sheer fear when they realize, oh no, I was wrong. He, he demands us bow because he is God. However, as I mentioned, there is also his humanity. Now this is where it really gets touchy because... 
Okay, if Jesus is God, then how can he also be human? Now, as Derek just showed, Jesus, the scripture reveals Jesus as being fully God. One in essence with the creator God, with Yahweh, uh, the God of heaven and earth. But also the scripture reveals Jesus as being fully human. And that's very difficult. It's very tough for our finite minds to wrap ourselves around. How can it be fully God yet fully man? man? And that is, be, that is why at this particular point, more false doctrine has been created and propagated than any other subject. More heresies have been taught throughout Christian history when it comes to the nature of Christ than any other place. In fact, before the very close of the first century, before the close of the apostolic era, there was a group of individuals called the Docetics. And they were related to the whole Gnostic heresy, the whole Gnostic movement of the first century. But the Docetics and the Gnostics believed that anything, everything that was physical was evil by the very nature of it being physical. The only thing that could be good was that which was spiritual. So when the scripture comes along and Jesus comes along in human flesh and, and, the, and the apostles proclaimed him to be God in the flesh, well, the Docetics said, well, that can't be true because God could not take the form of evil and that's physical flesh. So Jesus only appeared to be a man. He was like this apparition, if you will, but he didn't really have a physical body. And see, that whole thing was just born out of this unwillingness to let the tension of the humanity and the divinity of Christ be something that is beyond our capacity to really grasp, but something that is a divine revelation of God. Because you see, the testimony of the Scripture is that Jesus was just as much human as He was God. He was just as much human as you and me. He had a human birth. He grew physically. He ate and drank. In other words, He hungered and He thirsted. He experienced temptation, the Scripture says, just like we do, but without sin. He experienced grief. He wept. He cried. He grew exhausted at the end of a long day. He bled and died on the cross. So everything about that we experience as humans, Jesus in his incarnation, in his body, he also experienced. And by the way, the incarnation, we'll talk about that in just a moment, is how we refer to God taking upon himself, wrapping his divinity in human flesh. So he was fully divine and he was fully human, coexisting in one person. Now, what James just explained, let me just say for a minute, my degree, I'm, I'm finishing at the end of this month, is in the patristic period, which is the first 300 years of the church. Um, what he just did in five minutes took about 300 years for the early church to figure out. <laughs> well, I'm just more simple than those guys. <laughs> they argued for about three and a half centuries and finally came to that conclusion. They were just smarter than me, you know? I get to benefit from all of their struggle. It's true. And that is true. We yeah. get to benefit from yes. all of their struggle. No question. We don't have to make all the same mistakes. We can come to the Scripture and trust the Word of God That's to right. say what it says and mean what it means, even if it is outside the boundaries of my finite capacity to wrap myself around. So, now, Jesus was the only, what we, what we call theanthropic. Mm. Okay, that's a really funny word, a theanthropic. That is a combination of the word theos, Greek word for God, and anthropos, man. So, he was theanthropic. He was theos plus anthropos. Not God in man, but the God-man. Yep. Okay? 
fully God, yet fully man, existing equally in one purpose. And that was accomplished by what we call the incarnation. How many of you have ever heard that word, incarnation? Okay, well, it's from two words, carne, which means flesh, and in, which means, guess what? In. So that was pretty easy. Okay, incarnation, in other words, in flesh. That's what the incarnation means. Now, you and I were born, but the scripture tells us that Jesus existed eternally. He assumed human form in the incarnation. And in that incarnation, Jesus did not lose his divine nature, but he simply voluntarily and temporarily limited the expression of it. Are you with me? Jesus did not lose his divinity when the incarnation came about. He simply, for that period of time, voluntarily and temporarily limited it. You see, often, as Derek talked about a moment ago, Jesus demonstrated things that only God can do. He demonstrated his deity over and over and over, but he never used it get this, for his advantage. Hmm. Jesus refused to use his divine nature for his advantage. And we have a lot of illustrations of this in Scripture. In his temptation, remember after the fasting and coming out of the wilderness and the enemy tempted him, he was hungry after fasting as he would be for that period of time. And so the enemy said to him, if you are God... Turn these stones to bread. In other words, so you can eat them and quench your hunger. And Jesus refused to do so. He could have, but he refused to. He would not use his divinity for his own advantage. On the cross, they said to him, if you are God, take yourself down. And he could have, but he refused to. He would not use his divine power for his advantage. At other times... We see him very quickly, very easily, very often demonstrating divine power. He heals the sick, even from a distance. He doesn't even have to be close where they are. He raises the dead. He calms the sea. He exercises power over the heavens and the earth. He forgave sin, something that they said, well, only God can do that. And Jesus said, right. Mm -mm. You got it. You know, one one of the greatest songs ever written was about this. Okay. He could have called <laughs> 10,000 angels. How many of y'all grew up on that? You know that. And it's absolutely the truth. In fact, that's what the enemy said to him. You, you call 10,000 angels and they'll raise you up so that you do not stump your, your foot against the stone. But Jesus refused to do it. So in the incarnation, we see divinity, the very nature of God, coming and taking wrapping itself in human flesh, living as a human in all things as we are, and demonstrating at the same time deity. Now, as a theanthropic man, that's hard to say, isn't it? (laughs) Theanthropic man, Jesus does six things. This is very important. This is where we start digging deep here, okay? It's one thing to say fully human, fully God. But in that capacity as fully human and fully God, what did Jesus do? First of all, he reveals God. You see, only God can reveal himself. He had to reveal himself in Scripture. He reveals himself in whom? The living word, which is Jesus. So Colossians 1.15 calls him the image of the invisible God. He is revealing God. He's physically revealing God to us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says he is the exact 
representation of his nature. So Jesus, if people say, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, his exact representation of his nature. But not only that, he reveals mankind because he's fully human, yet fully divine. He, he re reveals mankind to us the way that God intended us to be. The way he created human people in the very beginning in the garden. Jesus came back and he says, now this is what I meant for you to be. This is what you would look like without sin intruding, without sin sabotaging. This is what I intended. So Jesus not only reveals God, but he reveals us. He allows us to look in the mirror and say, this is what we could be without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says he was tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Third, and this really kind of dives deep into the weeds, he fulfills the Davidic covenant. There are two covenants of the, of the Old Testament. There's the Abrahamic covenant that God said, I will raise up your descendants and, and they, through you all of the nations will be blessed. But then God made another covenant with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that out of his lineage, out of his descendants, he would in fact raise up the Messiah who would reign forever. And if you want to read the whole thing, it's all in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Well, when Matthew opens his gospel, Matthew tracks the lineage of Jesus through whom? David. David, to show that Jesus was the actual fulfillment of the promise that God made to King David. In other words, as another evidence, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Fourth, he is the mediator between God and man. In other words, Jesus stands between the two in order to bring reconciliation. And I'm going to talk about that a little moment in a moment a little bit more. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. The scripture declares, There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Did you get that? That's why Jesus is able to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Because he is the only mediator between God and and man in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, and in his resurrection. Third, Jesus defeats Satan. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. First mm. Peter chapter 3, verse 22. He's referring to Jesus who has gone into heaven and is to the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Sixth, and I love this, he serves as the last Adam. When you come to the scripture, you hear two Adams referred to. There is the first Adam in the garden who created in perfection yet failed and rebelled. Okay? He sinned. And the scripture teaches that we inherit that sin nature from our ancestor, Adam. And we also inherit the penalty of that, which is the penalty of death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, By one man came death, in Adam all die. We're all ancestors of Adam. We all experience physical death. And if that is as far as we go, we will all experience eternal death. But there is another Adam that the Bible teaches, and that is the Adam, which is Jesus. You see, everybody that is in the first Adam is on the Titanic, okay? 
And the Titanic is going down. And the band is still playing. And the band played on. But the Titanic still sunk. That was good. You like that? That was good. Was that in your notes? Did you intend that? It was just the spirit level. You're, You're a genius. If anyone is going to escape the judgment of going to the bottom of the ocean on the Adam ship, you better get off and get into the lifeboat who is Jesus, the last Adam. Because he says that in the last Adam, all have life. That is Jesus, the God-man, theanthropic. Okay, so we have, he's fully God, yet he is fully man in the incarnation. He is theanthropic. I'm losing my voice because I've been sick all week. No, it is not the COVID. I did get tested, okay? Now, Derek, you're going to have to do this real quick. Uh, We'll see. Because I've got to get to the death. I know. Okay. We're going to try. So, his divinity... His humanity. This is what we believe. This is what the Scripture teaches. We have next His birth. Now, James said a moment ago He existed before the beginning of time, but in His incarnation where He assumed flesh, He was born. But this presents another theological problem for us. If Jesus is born like you and I, He would have inherited the same sin nature that we all inherit. This is passed on through birth through actually the seed of man, but through the, the conception of a human being. Psalm 51.5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity. We're born with sin. It's like a disease that no one escapes. Everyone is infected with it. It spreads throughout because of the seed of man. Romans 5.17, it says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Beginning with the first Adam, death reigns throughout all of creation. It is Adam's line that sin and death spread. Even 1 Peter 1.23, when Peter's talking about being born again, he says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The regular seed brings death, but God's seed brings imperishable life. Now, this poses a problem for Jesus unless Jesus' birth is different than ours, and as you might expect, it was. He was born of a virgin, a virgin birth. Born of woman, but not of... Not of man. Mary becomes pregnant before she marries Joseph. Joseph becomes reasonably upset with her. Uh, And then it is in a dream that an angel appears to Joseph. He says, Joseph, son of David, there's that Davidic title again, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Something only God can do, by the way. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So by the Holy Spirit, Mary conceives Jesus. Why? Because otherwise Jesus would not have been sinless. Would have inherited that sin nature that we do. The sin of the first Adam. And without a sinless Savior... We have no redemption. We have no forgiveness of sin. Some people argue the virgin birth as like a non-essential thing. Like, we can just agree to disagree. We cannot agree to disagree on this. (laughs) This is an incredibly important theological aspect of Jesus' life. It is essential that he is born of a virgin. Otherwise, he is not sinless, and we are all still condemned. Number four, his offices. In his incarnation, so as a human... He really fulfills three major offices uh, during his time on earth. One, he's the greatest prophet. He's the greatest prophet. So uh, it is true that Jesus is a prophet, but it's not, he's not just any prophet. <laughs> he's the greatest prophet there has ever been. In Deuteronomy 34, 10 and 11, 
uh, God talks about the importance of Moses. He says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. There is no prophet like Moses, and up to that point, there has not been one since. But God told Moses something before he died. This is in Deuteronomy 18, 16. He says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So the great prophet Moses better listen to this next prophet. Yes. So this next prophet's going to be even greater, right? There's, there's not been another one like Moses yet, but the one that's coming, he's even better. And we get to Acts chapter 3, and Peter is preaching Jesus to a bunch of Jewish people in Solomon's portico, which is right outside the temple. He quotes this passage, Deuteronomy 18, 16. God's going to raise up another servant. And then this is what he says. He says, God, having raised up his servant... So he's telling us he fulfilled that. Having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And he goes on and said, and by the way, you crucified him. <laughs> Not good. Not good. <laughs> Not good. In other, words, in other words, that prophet that is going to be greater than Moses is Jesus. And as the prophet who speaks for God... He is the final word. Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken, done to us by his son. Show enough. Show enough. Exactly. He is the greatest prophet. Number two, he's the high priest. The main task of a priest was to offer daily sacrifice. Jesus was a different kind of priest. He made a final sacrifice that is lasting. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, it says, Every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Kind of a crappy deal. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he sit down? It because does. he's done. There's he's no, done. He no longer need a sacrifice. The old priests were daily offering. Jesus said once and for all, this is why on the cross, he says the Greek word tetelestai, which means it is finished. Yeah. Yes. Third, he's the everlasting king. Revelation 1.5 says he's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. All the kings of the earth are subject to him. In Matthew, James just talked about as the, the theantropic, he is a, a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In Matthew, Matthew says over and over and over again that Jesus is the son of David. Hebrews 1.8 says that Jesus' throne will last forever and ever. In ancient culture, if you were to enter into the presence of a king, you would bow. That was, that was customary. In Philippians chapter 2, we're, said, we're told at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow under heaven and on earth and under the earth. He is a prophet. He is a priest. And he is a king. Amen. Number five. Did I tell you that we're diving deep today? His death. There's not a lot of entertainment here, is there? No. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on each one of these points yep. if we really wanted to dive deep. Okay? So I hope that you're taking it notes. I hope that you get this outline. I hope that you put this down. I hope that you keep every message that we're doing so that you have a, an outline form, a systematic theology of all of these topics that of what God has revealed to us, of what our faith really is. That's right. And you know, one of the saddest things in the world is you can ask a Christian, what do you really believe about so-and-so, and they can't tell you. We, we should be able to give a defense of our faith, the Scripture says. We're commanded to be able to give a defense of our faith. And someone says, is Jesus God? 
you should be able to say, well, yes, let me turn to the back of my Bible and let me just go through these notes with you right here of what the Scripture says, giving a defense of the faith. Now, all of this, his, his deity, his humanity by the incarnation, his virgin birth and perfect life, his offices, all of these are leading up to his death. Now, here's the question. We talk about the crucifixion of Jesus a lot, but we're going to dive way deep on this this morning for the next 10 minutes, and then the last five minutes, Derek will close us out. Here's the question. What does the Word of God say Jesus' death on the cross actually accomplished? Most of you could give me a summary answer. This is a good example. A good example. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Not a good example. The cross was not a good plan that went bad. It was the divine, sovereign purpose of God. But what did it really uh, accomplish? Well, some of, most of you would say, well, it, it allows me the ability to be forgiven. Well, that's true. That's true. It allows me uh, to uh, have a relationship with, with God the Father. Well, that's true. But we're going to dive deeper then. I want you to get a deeper appreciation of how God planned the cross and what he intended that it was going to accomplish. 35% of Matthew, Mark, and Luke of the Synoptic Gospels are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus ministered for three years, but 35% of the gospel writers focused on that last week, which is his crucifixion and his resurrection. So the cross was a summation of God's plan. Everything before the cross, everything was moving toward the cross. Since the cross and the resurrection, everything in human history is moving toward what? Second coming? The second coming, when he comes again. Everything moved toward the first coming. Now everything moves toward the second coming. So what was it that the cross was? What was the cross? First of all, it was a substitution. His was a substitutionary sacrifice. Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means in our place. We were the ones who had the penalty of death. Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin, so he didn't have the penalty of death upon his head. We are the sinners. We have the penalty of death. But when Christ died on the cross, it was actually a substitutionary death as all sacrifices were in the Old Testament when they were animal sacrifices. So he died in our place. It was his cross accomplished substitution, a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for imperfect individuals who cannot save themselves. Second of all, it was an expiation, one of those college words. To expiate something means to extinguish it. It means to do away with it. At the cross, there was an expiation that took place. What was that? At the cross, Jesus expiated our guilt toward God. Christ's death extinguishes our guilt. When we come into Christ by faith, our guilt is expiated. It is extinguished. And the reason that Jesus' cross can do that is because Jesus' life and his death fully satisfied the holiness of God. When Adam, the first Adam, sinned, what immediately happened? He was put out of the presence of God, wasn't he? 
Why? Because of the holiness of God. Because God's perfect holiness cannot stand in the presence of that which is not holy. And then if we in, inherit Adam's sin and unholiness, then we have no capacity to be in the presence of him who is perfectly holy. So for us to have a relationship with him who is holy, something's got to be done with our guilt, doesn't it? Something's got to be done with it. It's got to be expiated. Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross provided an expiation of my guilt. In Christ, the scripture says now, I am made holy. I am made holy. Not that I am holy. I am made holy. I am declared holy for I have been covered with the holiness of Christ. Are you getting this folks? This is important stuff. I hope you have an appreciation theologically of what the cross really means for you today. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, looking toward the Messiah who was to come, who was Christ, he says, the prophet says, He, the Lord, caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. Mm. He took my guilt and He put it on Christ. Hebrews 9, 26. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So Jesus Christ, cross was a substitution. I was the one that deserved to be crucified. He substituted his perfect life for my imperfect life. It was an expiation. He expiated my guilt. He covered my guilt with his holiness. Third, it accomplished propitiation. Now, these are great words, aren't they? These are theological terms. They're actually biblical terms that are used in scripture. Hey, listen, if postmodernism seeks to deconstruct language, it's important for God's people to preserve language. To preserve it, absolutely. To preserve the meaning of these words. It accomplished propitiation. Propitiation means to appease, to make satisfied. So what does the cross satisfy, satisfy for us and for God? Here it is, folks. It satisfies and propitiates God's wrath against sin. Now, now, we're, I, now we're Baptists. Now we're Baptists. Woo! I would challenge you to get an exhaustive concordance of the Bible and look up the word wrath and look at every passage in the Old and New Testament where the word wrath appears and you will discover something that most of us never talk about. The Bible talks about God's wrath a whole lot. Yep. In fact, the scripture says that his wrath is burning against sin. Now we don't like to talk about that because it's unsettling. But as I said, the scripture talks often about it. And so what did the cross do? The cross propitiated God's wrath. It satisfied God's wrath for all who are in Christ. Romans 3, 24 through 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, okay, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over foreman, former sins. As a propitiation, Romans 5, 9 carries it further. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved, listen, from what? From the wrath of God. Jesus Christ's cross for all of us who are in Christ have been saved from the burning wrath of God against sin. Why? Because Jesus 
propitiated God's wrath against sin. As He took my sin upon Himself on the cross and received the full expression of the wrath of God for my sin, therefore I do not have to experience the wrath of God for my sin. Is that not good news or what? That's a little bit bigger than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't know, man. That'll preach. That'll preach. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Hebrews 2.17 says that Christ made propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation against the wrath of God. 1 John 4.10, And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. Now to get this, you're going to talk about God's love and His wrath in one verse. They do not contradict each other. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Every time that word appears in the Scriptures, it's talking about the wrath that God has against sin that destroyed His creation. Revelation 6.17, for the great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? That's talking about when God expresses His wrath after the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 16.1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. It is a expiation. It's a, it's a, it's a substitution. It's a, um, what's the second one? You had an expiation? No, no, it's, a pro, it's an expiation. It's a propitiation. propitiation. Okay, yep. fourth, it accomplished redemption. To redeem means to buy something back, to buy it out. How many of you are old enough to remember S&H green stamps? My mama, poor people, collected S&H green stamps, right? She'd go to the grocery store, bend them on her purchase, they'd give her a number of green stamps. She had this little book, she'd put them in there. When the book was full, she'd set it aside and fill another book. When she had four or five of those books, she would go to what? The Redemption Center. Oof. Remember? There was, used to be one of them that was still open when I was in seminary over there by the seminary. I loved to drive by. SNH Green Stamps Redemption Center. She would take those. She would see something she wanted. She would redeem it out and she would trade those books of stamps that she had and she would take it home. You see, in the scripture, Jesus has redeemed us. And what that simply means is that his blood has purchased us out. You say, purchased us out of what? Redeemed us from what? Well, He's redeemed us from the curse of the law. The Scripture says that God's Old Testament law is perfect. None of us can live up to that perfection, so we are what? We're cursed by the law if we're going to try to save ourselves by good works. But because of the cross, He redeemed us from that curse. He took us out from under that. We're not under the law, we're under what? We're under grace. Galatians 3, 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. In other words, He took our curse upon Himself. Christ redeemed us from guilt and the penalty for sin. Romans 3, 24. Justified. We are justified as a gift of grace through the redemption which is in Christ. Every time you see redemption, buying out, purchasing out. Third, Christ redeemed us from the power of sin. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood. As of a, that's the price of redemption. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Next, it accomplished reconciliation. Reconciliation means to bring estranged parties together. The scripture testifies, I'm going to move real quickly. 
that before Christ, we are all alienated from God. Why? Because we can't stand in the presence of His holy, holiness as unholy. So we're alienated from God. But what Romans 5 says is that we are reconciled to God through the death of Christ. So that's what the, what the cross accomplished. Get this. We deserve the penalty of death. So Jesus substituted Himself for us on the cross. We carry guilt for sin. So therefore, Jesus expiated our guilt before mm. God. We were objects of God's wrath for our sins, so Jesus propitiated God's wrath by taking our sin upon Himself. We were held captive to the curse of the law and to sin and death, so Jesus, by His precious blood, redeemed us out from that curse of the law and sin and death with His blood. We were separated from God. Therefore, Jesus reconciled us by His cross. Do you have a deeper understanding and love for the cross of Christ? I hope you do. I hope you do. It is good. It is good. We've got three, and I can do this quickly. Number six, His resurrection. At the very end of the Gospels and Acts, the beginning of Acts, there are a lot of proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's not our purpose here this morning. Our purpose is to talk about the purpose of the resurrection. Why did the resurrection happen? Why does it matter? Romans 1.4 says that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection, in other words, is a statement of power. It's a declaration of power, a sign to us of Christ's power, specifically over sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15.17, it says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Yep. He goes on to say in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are the most to be pitied. Why does he say that? Because we suffer for our faith, which is vacant. It has no real bones. It has no real depth or, or, or purpose. You just suffer for nothing, and, and then, then you die. Life sucks, and then you and die. And then you die. But if he is risen, we're all subject to him. And everything that James just said is true for those of us who are by faith believers, and is not true for those who are not. Number seven, his ascension. So after he is resurrected, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Acts 1.9, it says, when he had said all these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. He ascended to the Father in heaven. Now the question is, why? What is he doing there? Romans 8.34, it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, and who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Sometimes somebody, I walk in a room and they say, what are you doing? I say, I'm praying for your nasty soul. That's right. And I don't really mean it. Jesus is. Jesus is. He is interceding. He's always making for intercession for us. But beyond that, he's not only interceding, he's preparing for us. John 14, 1 through 3 says, uh, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in mm. God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may also be. Amen. Amen. Every youth pastor is singing Father's house right now. Am I right? <laughs> Jesus' ascension to the Father gives me confidence that one day I will ascend to the Father as well. Amen. And I will go to that place he has prepared for me. And I will go there upon his return. And that is our last point for this morning. He will come again. Acts 1, verse 10 and 11, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, 
Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In clouds of glory. He's going to come back down. He actually describes this. Jesus describes this in Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of, what's this? The Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with glory, just like Daniel predicted. The Son of Man comes back to take his people home. John ends Revelation with that same thing. He says, Amen. Come again, Lord. Come again soon. This is Jesus. This is the doctrine of Christ. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral man. He's not just a good example. Those are cheap and honestly offensive descriptions. Heretical descriptions. Heretical descriptions of the Lord of glory. deny God. He is everything that God is bound in human flesh. He could accomplish everything for us that He accomplished, the Scripture says, because He was fully God and He was fully man. That's right. If you take those two apart, he can do none of the things that the Scripture says he has done for us. Only God can do what Jesus has done. The question, Only man could do what Jesus has done. The question really for us this morning before we close in prayer is this. This is something to think about as we, as we pray. Will you submit to him? There's the key. That's where the rubber meets the road. Will you live your life under his lordship? Think about that as we go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just a beautiful picture that you have presented to us in your word regarding your son. The power, the preeminence, the glory, and yet the the mercy and the compassion we find in the man, Jesus Christ, that stands between us and you as a mediator, that is our substitution, that expiates our guilt, that propitiates your wrath. Lord, how we thank you for the redemption we find in him. I pray that every heart would bow before him and those that have not yet bowed before him would see this morning as a sign, Lord. Your scripture says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I pray that hearts would be softened and that perhaps for the first time people would bow before King Jesus. Lord, we love you and we thank you and it is in his powerful name we pray. Amen. Great time together this morning. Thank you. God bless you as you go.